Come in, come in, and welcome to the cave of the Eco Chamber. This is a podcast brought to you by the Journalists Events Report, exploring the most important environmental policy in the UK. With me, your host, James Adjibong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Tory right spin-off group led by Liz Truss, barking at government quangos like the EA and Natural England. At the end of last month, the DUP ended its two-year boycott of a power-sharing government with Sinn Féin, and now we have a newly appointed environment minister. But what's in his tray? And off what's new powers under the Environment Act to fine water companies for poor customer service, which kicked in this week. What are they? For our deep dive, we'll be tracking down the big bad wolves of Europe, discussing the current threats they're facing. So harness up and let's explore this week's Eco Chamber! To help me on my expedition into the cave of big green news this week, I'm joined by the ENDS features and news editors, Tess Colley and Pippa Neal. For our first story, we're looking at popular conservatism, or popcons, a new right-wing movement within the Conservative Party launched by our former Prime Minister, Liz Truss. Tess, what do they want? Well, yeah, so Liz Truss, former Prime Minister for 44 days, you may remember. Over, over a year it. ago, if you can, you, harsh, it's hard to remember things that finish so quickly, but um, <laughs> she was there and um, she and some other once influential MPs like the former Energy Secretary uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, they're sort of leading this and they've described PopCons as a movement to bring back power uh, to elected MPs and the government, um, where they're bringing it back from is a little less clear, but um there's this perception that they have expressed um, that the UK courts and government arms length bodies are holding too much power. And according to the flyers that they were that were handing out at the launch event, a key pillar of the popcorn agenda also appears to be putting an end to net zero zealotry. Um, and that's I'm quoting there, not, not my words, uh, and promoting energy pragmatism. So that's 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 a bit of what they want. And is it a big group? Like, are lots of people joining the party? The well, party, the popcorn party. The popcorn. Um, <laughs> it's hard to hard to say exactly. I mean, it's been pro- reported that there were about a dozen uh, Tory MPs at the launch, um, and then apparently about thirty were reported at the after party at Reese Mogg's house. Though you know, haven't been able to verify this claim or or put any particularly exciting names to that um but i mean the actual numbers that are in the group and who at the launch i mean it was meant to be four speakers including former defra secretary renald jayawardena but he dropped out the day before um interesting yeah and simon clark was meant to speak but he was to be fair he was sort of booted off because he'd said he basically didn't think sunak should should lead um lead in lead the tories into the next election and, and he got they, booted off for that. He got booted that. off the kind of panel for that because the popcons say they're not about trying to challenge Rishi Sunak's uh, leadership, although they don't look like they're trying to support it either. Exactly. Were there any details then in in any of the MP speeches who did get to speak um, that you know that environmentalists might be concerned about? Well, yeah. So Reese Mogg, who for many environmentalists, they know him well because he's often seems to have had a bit of a bee in his bonnet about various environmental issues. And he took particular aim at Natural England. Um, and he said, 
You know, we need to bring back the association between the elector and the elected um, and that this has been broken in recent years and it's the judges and the quangos and the quangos. And he went, then he sort of went off and on about, um, you know, his, they think, you know, he thinks natural England has been on the Somerset sider because uh, he is the Somerset uh, MP. And in Somerset, they've got a bit of an issue with neutral neutrality. There are homes that are held up there. Um, and he said, you know, so why aren't we building the houses we should want to build? It's because of natural England. Uh, and then I'm quoting now, that means that my voters cannot get the houses they want because it's being stopped. It's a huge problem in Somerset. And he says, not just in Somerset, it's across the country. And it's because of unaccountable, unelected quangos. Yikes. Yes. Okay, so there's a target on natural England's back from Reese Mogg. Mm. I mean, it's partially true, but is he right about nutrient neutrality being the 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 block to housing? I mean, it's it's one thing that is holding up some houses in some places, um, but there are so many things that are an obstacle to house building at the moment. It's not entirely, um, it's it it's a little disingenuous, arguably, to to put it all at neutral neutrality's door. Um, I mean, just in January this year, we ends published a piece, um, which you know I, I did lots of FOIs to local councils and. Um, Basically, it looked like the number of houses actually held up at the you know end of last year uh, was around the fifty thousand mark, um, and if you put that in, in the context of the government having more or less scrapped its three hundred thousand uh, homes a year target, I think there are a lot of other things going on. Nutrient neutrality seems to become a target for other reasons we, we won't get into, but um, yeah, it's not. It's it's interesting that it's becoming part of this narrative of. Un, unelected power yes and bringing back power sort of just sort of echoes of brexit yeah language well it's, it's yeah it's strange because natural england and the environment agency these are bodies which you know they answer to to the government <laughs> they are part they're an arm's length body of the government they didn't just arrive out of space like they are <laughs> <laughs> they were set up by the government <laughs> Uh, so it, this idea that they sort of have emerged from some some hole and are kind of causing havoc, it's quite, it's quite, it's, it's odd. And I do think it was interesting when I read your story about this, how Rhys Mogg neglected to mention the government's failure to sort of counteract neutral neutrality through the levelling up bill mm-hmm. um, and that failure. So it's not like they didn't have, you know, levers to pull. It's just mm. when they pulled them, they didn't. Well, yeah, didn't work. They talked a lot in this launch about you know Parliament being cut out of things, and but it was Parliament that blocked that nutrient neutrality uh, amendments. It was because Labour got behind it. It was all politics. It was it was all, it was democracy at work. You could say um, it wasn't natural England. It wasn't. They really- would. Lo- I mean, I'm sure they would have loved to have had more of influence than they did. Yeah, not Reese Monk's democracy apparently. Mm-hmm. Pippa, I'd I'd love to find out a little bit more about what Liz Truss said. Um, about you know environmentalism being hijacked, I think I read by extreme lefties. Like, I mean, it, fa- it sounded pretty far out. What was what was all that about? Yeah, it was all a bit strange. Um, but she said that left wing extremists have repurposed themselves as environmentalists, and she said it's all about taking power away from people and families and giving power to the state or unaccountable bodies. So basically, just echoing what Rhys Mogg had said in his earlier speech. And specifically on environmental watchdogs and in reference to Jacob Rees-Mogg's previous speech um, about the courts being aloof and elitist, 
Trust said that Jacob makes a very good point about the legal system and added that it's true with Environment Agency, Natural England, the Office for Budget Responsibility, and it's true with the Post Office. Are you an extreme lefty environmentalist? Email us, ecochamber at haymarket.com <laughs> with your thoughts on Liz Truss and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Over to Northern Ireland now and the new Environment Secretary. Um, it has been tumultuous, to say the least. We have a new government and we have a new Environment Minister at the Department for Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, commonly known as DERA. Pippa, who is our new Environment Minister in Northern Ireland? So it's a man called Andrew Muir, um, who's an Alliance Party member of the Legislative Assembly for North Down. Um, and prior to joining the Northern Ireland Assembly in 2019, he served for nearly a decade as a councillor, including a term as mayor for North Down in 2013. Uh, he's got a hell of a lot on, hasn't he? Yeah, it's an extremely big brief. I'm sure he'll be pretty busy. Um, I mean, there's so many delays um, in Northern Ireland when it comes to environmental policy. So the environmental principles policy statement, the environment strategy, um, its nutrient action programme related to the polluted Loch Ney, air pollution, ammonia, agricultural policy, the list goes on of kind of the things that are delayed or are due to be published. So yeah, he's definitely going to be busy. And that's because, you know, environmental policy is a devolved issue. But when there's no government, you know, we're, <laughs> we're here. Let's get stuck into some of it then. And that kind of, you know, overarching mandate um, to get Northern Ireland on a green footing, which I see as the environmental principles policy statement and the environment strategy. Um, what can we say about that, Tess? Well, they're both kind of in, in draft form. They're yet to be formally adopted, even though they've, they, you know, there's been a legal duty to deliver them in the last year, but, you know, haven't had a government um and that but that's important because the country's adoption of of the environment act into its own secondary legislation set duties on DERA to publish uh both and that is meant to set a strategic outcomes on excellent air water land and neighborhood quality healthy and accessible environment and landscapes and thriving resilient and connected nature and wildlife all things i'm sure northern Ireland would love to see um and like that but the lack of progress um over in Northern Ireland, it kind of it caught the attention of the Office for Environmental Protection, uh, which kind of its its own mandate is for both for England and Northern Ireland. Um, but yeah, this lack of progress in Northern Ireland on all these big important things got the attention of the the Office for Environmental Protection uh, over the course of last year. Um, and just just last September, it was saying it remains disappointed that there's there's no timeline to publish. Um, this environment strategy, which is like their equivalent of the environmental improvement plan over here in, in England. Um, and yeah, so the, the OEP actually is kind of charged with looking at both England and Northern Ireland. Um, but there's, it's been pretty much the only oversight body that Northern Ireland's kind of had for <laughs> quite a while. Which is worrying. Um, but we're back. They're back. God, Ashford Cash scandal. Do you guys remember that? That brought Northern Ireland government down? Mm. Who would have thought a biomass policy could be so destructive? <laughs> um, anyway, moving on. Um, so a, a really big political issue um, is Loch Ney. And for listeners, that is the, it's an inland loch. It's about the size of the Isle of Wight. It's massive. It's been tapped for over a century for sand extraction, and it's so important for water consumption. But there are some serious environmental concerns, aren't there, Pippa? Yeah, so it's a really big problem because this it, it supplies 40% of Northern Ireland's drinking water. So it's, you know, huge. 
Um, but it's in a pretty bad state at the moment. So over the summer, there was a series of kind of long-standing toxic algae blooms to the point where people were, you know, told not to swim, not to eat fish from the lock. Like it was a huge, Grim. huge issue. Um, and this is basically caused by climate change, warming the the water, excess nutrients in the water course, storm sewage overflows and issues with failing septic tanks in rural homes. These were kind of all the things that were blamed for these issues over the summer. Um, there's also some big issues around sand extraction. Um, and although it has been extracted for more than a century, new tech like suction hoses means that more than a million tonnes of estimates to be extracted every year. Um, so yeah, it's basically a vital you know, a vital source, but it's been, it's not in a great state. So we've got a new environment minister. Is he going to fix it, Tess? There doesn't seem to be much of a plan just as of yet, um, but but there are, it seems, some intentions. But one one big issue uh, he's going to face is needing to get to, to grips with nutrients. It's it's the big thing polluting Loch Ness, particularly uh, from agricultural sources. I think it's a massive percentage um that's com- coming from there um and in you know october last year the oep called for urgent action uh to reduce nutrient inputs to the environment in northern ireland sort of uh, more generally because it's actually missed a legal deadline to review its nutrient action program um, so another missed legal deadline yeah. another missed legal deadline um but I, so i think that is that's got to be the big one uh, for him coming in, certainly from an environmental perspective. Uh, I did actually see that there was a debate happening in the Northern Ireland Assembly today on the lock. So we haven't listened to this yet because it's literally happening right now as we're recording. Um, but I'm sure we'll be covering it on news over on Ends Report and maybe on the podcast, depending on what happens. So keep an eye out. And I mean, I, I think it, it is it's such a political issue, something like Loch Ness, that it's interesting to see how these environmental policies are sort of playing out in the mainstream. I mean, I, I would like to ask, you know, how has Northern Ireland kind of got to this point in, in environmental terms? Um, well, it, it depends who you ask, but, you know, critics like those, that, um, I mean, Friends of the Earth who have campaign for on environmental grounds, they argue that previous ministers because they've pushed this this going for growth strategy and it's been the big thing for a while. And they argue that you know this because this aimed at accelerating uh, growth of farming, fishing, food and drink processing in Northern Ireland, um, it, it put this big push on livestock production, which of course then has other knock-on consequences. You know, more animals, the more manure they produce and the more pollution that comes from that. Um, so that's that's one argument of how it's got into this situation. But it's definitely, I mean, when you look at the stats of Northern Ireland, compared to all the other UK nations, it is quite shocking how how bad it is. On to our final story this week, and it's news that the water regulator Ofwat has been levelled up with new powers to fine water companies for poor customer service. Pippa, where has this new strength come from? So it's come from the Environment Act. The new strength came into force this week. And it comes amid a fall in customer satisfaction across all water companies, or most water companies, I should say. Um, And that's according to Ofwat's latest annual water company performance report. Which will come as no surprise to many of our listeners, I'm sure. So how do these new powers work? So each water company in England and Wales now has a duty under this newly added customer-focused licence condition. 
Um, And there is a list of things that each company must meet under this condition. So this includes communicating proactively with customers, particularly during incidents, um, being easy to contact, providing customer support when things go wrong, helping to put things right and demonstrating continual improvement to prevent foreseeable harm to its customers. Um, There's a few other things, but they're like the main kind of principles that it must follow. Right. So so if awards a company then fails to meet these requirements, these customer focused license conditions, what then happens next? So now Offwatt has the power to take enforcement action if it thinks that the water companies kind of haven't provided appropriate support. Um, and this enforcement action can include fines of up to 10% of the company's annual turnover. So we are potentially talking about multi-million pound fines here for consumer satisfaction. It's interesting because on the same day as this announcement, um, it was also announced that Offwatt will be taking forward a consultation to define the criteria for a ban on water company bosses receiving bonuses if they have committed serious criminal breaches. Um, and this was first announced in the government's plan for water last year. I mean, and the ramifications are huge because you're talking collectively once you bring all the England's water bosses together, you know, over over some years, you know, tens of millions of pounds of bonuses here. Um, but how would that work, Tess? So the plan is that the ban would apply to all executive board members and chief execs. And that's according to, to what DAFRA have said. Um, it would be expected to apply to bonuses in the financial year of April 2024 to 2025. Uh, but the government has said companies should follow these proposed new criteria on a voluntary basis uh, from this year. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see if they want to voluntary, voluntarily follow it. Sure, sure. And and so then what, what's DEFRA said about this? I mean, you know, we could mention Steve Barclay's um, associations with the water industry. Mm, but um, We could do. Well, his wife, you mean. <laughs> We could, we have. Oh, let's not mention it. Let's not mention this. Uh, what what has DEFRA said? What's the official line about Offwood's off um, stance here? Yeah, well, the official line is no one should profit from illegal behaviour. And it's time that water company bosses took responsibility for, for that. That's what Steve Barkley has said. Uh, and he also said uh, tougher action is needed to address poor performance by water companies, which is why he's pleased that Offwood is going further uh, on bonus payments. Uh, and he said that in cases where companies have committed criminal breaches, there is no justification whatsoever for paying out bonuses and it needs to stop now. Um, I did think it was interesting because, you know, the, the line in this kind of off announcement is that these fee, like these uh, penalties will be for serious criminal breaches. And some campaigners have pointed out that, you know, in other aspects, um, the Environment Agency has the ability to actually take um, like so someone in the waste sector for example if they commit a serious criminal breach they would you know mm. be sent to prison for yeah. that mm. um, and yet here we're just talking about a fine on their bonuses yeah. so it does feel like you know of course this is good progress and you know it's, it's great that Offwatt is doing this but there does seem to be a bit of unequalness across the playing field here definitely Right, it's time now for our moment of the week where we discuss something fun, weird, or in this case, toxic. And that is because Ends Report has a new film on PFAS chemicals. It's called Toxic, Britain's Forever Polluted Rivers and Seas. And it really showcases the dangers we're in due to the threat of PFAS chemicals. Um... It's a 25-minute short. We created it alongside the Watershed Investigations team who have done some really great work. 
Um, I think it's going to have a really big impact on the news cycle. And it's going to be coming out, folks, next Monday on the 19th of February. So bookmark it. The film will be available to ENDS Report subscribers as part of their subscription. But non-subscribers can watch it so long as you register with us, which is free and only takes a few seconds. So listeners, go to endsreport.com forward slash toxic. On to our deep dive now as we run with the wolves in Europe and discuss if and how they need better protections. To help me howl against the moon, I'm joined by ENDS Compliances Manager Alice Fillon. Fantastic. I was going to ask you for a howl. You did it. Oh, amazing. Right. On September the 1st, 2022, in a small hamlet called Bainholm in the German state of Lower Saxony, an old family pet pony called Dolly was eaten by a wolf. Unluckily for the wolf, Dolly the pony belonged to the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, and his fate was sealed. Using DNA taken from Dolly's cadaver, the wolf was identified as the tagged mature male GW950M. Now, DNA tests on other carcasses implicated him for other livestock kills, which included 70 sheep, horses, cattle and goats. So he had a target on his back and he was classified as a problem wolf. Where wolves can only be killed under such exceptional circumstances, according to EU law, and unfortunately, GW950M ticked the box. A license was issued for his death and he was on the run. He's evaded execution ever since. Alice, to my preamble, in Britain, it is quite hard to imagine wolves strolling around our countryside. But what's their current range in Europe? So in this country, the last time you would have maybe seen a wolf is probably around like 500 years ago. Um, and we think the last wolf in Britain was probably shot in Scotland in around 1680, but not so in Europe. So just last December, the European Commission published uh, its latest report on grey wolf populations, um, and it found that they have significantly grown over the past two decades, they're now found. They are now found in all EU member states except for Ireland, Cyprus, and Malta. And when we say wolves are found everywhere, it's about more than twenty thousand of them. Uh, and they have breeding packs in twenty-three countries. So that's all of the range except for Luxembourg. Um, we also think that there's about twenty-five thousand grey wolves in Russia although they're not covered by the same protections as the EU wolves. Right, so we, we're talking about protections there. Mm -hmm. What protections do we have in the EU for wolves? So the the protection framework in the EU is uh, under mostly under the International Burn Convention, which was uh, adopted in 1979. Um, and then under that, it's uh, under the EU Habitats Directive, um, and that means that capturing and killing wolves is prohibited across the EU unless they pose a risk to humans or livestock. So that would be the serial killing wolf uh, that killed Ursula von der Leyen's pony. But in December, the commission said that it was tabling a proposal uh, to downgrade wolves' legal protection status uh, under the International Burn Convention, and that's from strictly protected to protected. So in practice, that's essentially moving wolves from Appendix 2 
to Appendix 3. And crucially, that would mean that hunting could be authorised, subject to things like closed seasons, uh, temporary or local bans on hunting to restore population levels, and regulation of um, the sale, transport, etc., of both live and dead animals. But having said that, because it's never that simple, uh, there are already reservations made by specific countries to the Berne Convention. So seven EU member states have put in a reservation so that wolves are not actually considered to be listed in Appendix 2 in their territory, so not strictly protected. So that's Bulgaria, Czechia, Finland, Latvia, Poland, Slovakia, and Slovenia. And for instance, Bulgaria and their reservation stated that this was because they have a lot of wolves in their country. Um, and then we've also got Lithuania and Spain, which submitted a reservation to consider wolves as protected rather than strictly protected within their respective territories. Right, so, they, so it sounds like they're trying to relax the rules because there's a problem. Well, no, actually, what I'm saying is that it, it's the uh, the statement that the commission is making now is actually perhaps less of a change to the situation than we might think based on that statement, right? Because in certain countries, uh, in effect, the protection of wolves is not as strict as the Berne Convention text would suggest. Right. So what is the issue when it comes to wolves? Like how much of a problem are they for the folks of Europe? Well, I mean, in short, they're predator, right? So um, like most predators, if they find a good prey just, you know, just hanging around in a paddock, they might partake. Uh, so obviously they enter into conflict with farmers um, and they, yeah, they kill livestock. Um, so in terms of numbers, uh, according to the commission, that's at least 65,000 livestock each year, um, mostly sheep. So, you know, the um, fairy tales are right. Uh, so that's 73% of cases. And then it's cattle next for 19%. And then horses and donkeys, 6%. So Dolly is one of that 6%. And then leading on from Dolly, we're going to go to the president of the commission, um, von der Leyen, and her comments in relation to hunting. So she said, the comeback of wolves is good news for biodiversity in Europe, but the concentration of wolf packs in some European regions has become real danger, especially for livestock. And she also said, to manage critical wolf concentrations more actively, local authorities have been asking for more flexibility. The European level should facilitate this, and the process the Commission started today is an important step. I'm deeply convinced that we can and will find targeted solutions to protect both biodiversity and our rural livelihoods. So, I mean, it is alluding to the fact that, um, yeah, the the situation for wolves and for farmers varies quite a lot across different countries in the in the EU. Right. I, I mean, so with this idea of reassessing the protected status of wolves, you know, how does that sit in with the general policy direction of the EU's own biodiversity goals? Yeah, it can it can look at first glance, it might look like it doesn't sit easily, right? But you have to look at it in the context that um wolf populations have boomed essentially. Um so it's a maybe a little less a little less obvious what the right uh, answer is because there are pressures with 
farming, there's also suggestions that even though wolf populations have boomed, it's not they're not necessarily stable populations across the board. So yeah, it's it's a it, it's an interesting question. But within um within a wider context of biodiversity protection in the EU, they're still they would still be protected, right? We're not saying kind of like entirely kind of like open season on wolves. Um and also it's this is still to be understood within the EU's broader commitments to protecting nature. Um, so they have signed up to protect 30% of their degraded ecosystems on land and sea by 2030 at the UN Biodiversity Summit in uh, 2022 in Montréal. Um, and as part of that, something like rewilding and kind of bringing large predators back is quite important because obviously they have uh they have a an important impact on uh, ecosystems right like if you think of wolves as traditionally predating on things like deer um they impact the landscape because if there are no predators deer will just naturally kind of graze um, and they'll graze in open land, uh, whereas if they are more fearful because there are predators about, um, they will, I think what they do is they kind of like, they keep to cover a bit more, and that has a direct impact on the on the land. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you just have to look at Scotland and, you yeah. know, massive deer populations there, and as a result, because we don't have an apex predator, that's the hunter. They have to, or it's argued that they have to cull the deer numbers because, like you say, they'll just eat everything and there's nothing to move them on. Yeah, yeah. So if you no look regrets. at um, the comparison that's always made is that um, Scotland, in a slightly different state, would have a very similar um, landscape to somewhere like Norway. That's interesting. Yeah, um, but clearly they don't. <laughs> um, there's far, far less forest coverage uh, and that's yeah, partly due to deer or partly or even possibly mostly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we do know that the EU is still pursuing that goal of, you know, nature protection. Yep. Can you just tell our listeners where we are with that? Like what's going on? What's next? Yeah. So um, most recently, uh, the EU Parliament uh, and the Council went into trilogue to discuss uh, a very contested proposal, the EU Nature Restoration Law, um, which is yeah, focused on restoring degraded land and marine ecosystems um, and to help meet that, um, that goal of 30% uh, protected ecosystems by 2030. Um, and what that law requires is for countries to introduce measures aimed at restoring nature on 20% of land and sea within the EU by 2030. So that's the text as it was um, amended during negotiations. Uh, and then all ecosystems in need of restoration uh, by 2050. So we don't think that the text is likely to change very much at this point because, again, trilogues have gone through. So the Council and the Parliament have agreed provisionally on the text. And now it just needs to get signed off in both the Parliament, which is due to happen at the end of this month, and then the Council. I have to ask. Yeah. What are your views on Dolly's demise? Mm, yeah, it's a it's a difficult one because obviously on the individual level, um, horrible. Uh, not 
not a happy death for Dolly. Uh, must have been awful to find her. But then a wolf is a predator. Um, you know, it's doing what wolves do. Would you like to see wolves back in Britain? I think in this country, that's that's a that's a big ask. I think let's start with lynxes, maybe. Lynx, my yeah. gosh, that's a whole episode mm. right there. Yep. Um, Alice, thank you so much for coming onto the Eco Chamber. No worries. And that's it. We've come to the end of this week's Eco Chamber. My thanks to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley, and Alice Fillon for coming onto the podcast. I'd love to hear from you folks. You can email me ecochamber at haymarket.com or using the hashtag ecochamber on all our socials don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and yeah maybe even share it with a friend until the next time take care